Emerald podcast series. Research that makes a difference. Welcome to the Emerald podcast series. In this series, we speak to experts from around the globe using research to create real impact. In each episode, we explore the role of research within the context of the environmental, economic, social and political challenges facing our society and look at the ways in which research, policy and practice interact to affect communities around the world. We're your hosts. I'm Daniel Ridge. I'm Helen Bedo, and we are publishers at Emerald Publishing. In this episode, we speak to Jonathan Wilson, editor of the Journal of Islamic Marketing and professor of Brand Strategy and Culture at Regents University in London. We talked about the ways organisations have responded to COVID-19 and to Black Lives Matter and the disproportionate effect these have had on minority communities in the UK. Welcome to the Emerald Podcast, Jonathan, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So we've seen that COVID-19 has had a disproportionate effect on ethnic minority groups in the UK. Do you think that organisations and businesses have responded appropriately? Yeah, kind of. And I say it in that way because this is unprecedented. You know, it's something that we've not experienced before. So I I would feel a bit funny about saying, no, we've not done enough and we could have done better. Because how do you respond to something which you have no idea how it's going to play out? I mean, things are being updated you know, almost on a day-to-day basis. Now, that's not to say that we couldn't have done things better, but hindsight is is a wonderful thing. And I think that's further complicated by the fact that when we look at some of the ways that these things are playing out and impacting on BAME individuals and communities, there are lots of reasons. So, you know, people would wonder whether that's something which is biological linked to genetics, or whether that's sociocultural. Is that due to health? People have looked at levels of obesity or diabetes, or even for some communities, if you've got large numbers of people living in the same house, or you live in a certain postcode area. I think if there was something that we could be doing better, it would be trying to join up all of those different disciplines together to come to some consensus and to share that information. Perhaps at times, I think that people have looked at things either from a health perspective or they've looked at things from an economic perspective where decisions are being made based upon whether, you know, we're going to tank our economy and and we're going to move into a, you know, a recession and the impact that that has on business. And so I am slightly concerned by that uh, in, in the fact that we're being asked to basically choose health over economics. So yeah, to go full circle. Yeah, I think we've done pretty well, but you know, I think there's a lot of room for improvement. Do you think that the increased risk for these communities has received enough attention? It's received attention with regards articles that have come out and media stories, but it's very difficult to assess whether that's being absorbed and digested in the way that it needs to be. So for example, I think you know, if I, you know, anecdotally share some of my experiences depending on I would say certain factors, it really influences how you receive those headlines. I mean, if you are from the BAME community, then of course your ears prick up and and you are very concerned about what's going on. Or if you know people from the BAME community or they're your neighbours or they're your work colleagues, you know, all of these sorts of things could have an impact on whether you actually pay particular attention or you understand the implications and what's being said. I mean, I also think that, you know, there's a difference between those people, therefore, who are BAME or who are in those situations which put you at high risk. So I have family that work for the NHS, 
And so that that is a real concern. Those are my family members from the BAME community because some of them did contract COVID-19. And also, you know, I've got family who contracted COVID-19 who weren't working for the NHS but were in the high-risk category. Sadly, you know, one of my family members passed away. And also, if we look at, for example, the impact of, of isolation and lockdown on for example, the, the mental health and weight, well-being of young people, like, you know, some of my students that were stuck in the UK, couldn't go back home, don't have any family, can't really access their friends, and that feeling of, of isolation and, and the impact on their mental health. Or it's the opposite, where you have a lot of family around you because you're home educating, and then suddenly you're expected to have several devices for your children to learn online and hold down a job. And think about the Wi-Fi that you need to have all of those things operating at the same time. You know, there's a different level of stress compared to the person who's living their best life on Instagram, learning how to cook, or getting Uber Eats takeaways. You know, we're seeing uh, lots of people that are affected. So yeah, depending on whether you live with people from different age ranges who are in your family, depending on whether you have children, depending on whether your job is on the line, or you're a key worker in a high-risk position. All of these things, I think, have an effect on how you look at these new stories and and whether they actually mean something. We've never asked so much from our parents in the society before, have we, to homeschool and work and look after family. I mean, it's such a... You're right that it's really impacted people differently depending on their circumstances. You know, how have employers responded to this increased risk? I think in the beginning, employers sent out the concerned email and maybe one or two said, can we just check that you've actually got the technology <laughs> to be able to work from home? And and then um, I think it's been more difficult for a lot of employers to, to maintain that level of care and concern because the reality is that, that businesses are also worrying about whether they are going to be around this time next year. So if we look at some of the changes, a lot of us are being expected to work from home. And for a lot of us, we had desktop computers. But with the lockdown, then we were suddenly plunged into working from home. And that meant using our own technology. So if you're one of the few that's used to remote working or has a laptop, has a couple of devices, then then great. But there are many people who are having to like borrow laptops and then let alone for their children having, you know, home education. So I think about some, you know, some of my colleagues who, you know, have a number of children. So one of the things that you might highlight is that in some communities, there are some ethnic groups, they have have larger families, right? So think about if you've got five kids, how different that is needing five devices. And on top of that, you and your spouse uh, needing to work from home. So you're now talking about seven devices. That's that's ridiculous. I don't know many people that, that have access to all of that equipment. And even now, you know, we're we're doing a podcast. And because I've been vlogging for years and recording things like that, then I have a microphone, I have technology, but but there are lots of people now being faced with this prospect of online education for the rest of the year who now think, wow, I need a microphone. Do I have a webcam? Uh, what's my internet connection? And I think that's where employees have been a little bit slower because they've not really taken responsibility for the equipment needed other than download this app. <laughs> or use Microsoft Teams, or get on a, um, a Zoom call. And there are many of us that are now facing Zoom fatigue. I think on some days, you know, I could have I could have clocked up easily eight hours of video calls. It's exhausting, isn't it? 
it's more than exhausting. <laughs> I'm a complete zombie. And it's funny because, you know, on one level, we've tested properly what working from home is like. Because prior to that, you know, a lot of companies would, would poo-poo the idea. They might say, oh, one day a week, because we're concerned that you're not going to be as productive. But, you know, many people have proved that they are actually more productive. It's debatable whether that's that they're, they're desperate to hold down their jobs and not be furloughed or, or made redundant. But in the short term, people have been able to prove that you can work from home. And I, I've seen one example of a law firm in London that's not renewing its lease and will be operating uh, completely remotely and, and saving a lot of money with regards, you know, rent in central London. So we're proving that we can work from home, whether that's healthy, doing so many video calls, that's debatable. Mm. Yeah, Zoom is, to me, is the next level where we're, we're now trying to work out how we work remotely and online. And, and currently people feel that that needs to be where we, we see each other's faces. But you know that it's really tough staring at yourself and other people in front of a webcam with the window mm. shut no air conditioning on, it's hot, you're sweating. We also thought, hey, this is what young people want. You know, they're always yes. on their devices. You know, they, they like going on YouTube and Netflix and stuff. What we can see is, you know what, there's a big difference between watching Netflix on your phone and staring at somebody doing nothing on a Zoom call. Yes. Or watching a lecture online for an hour. It's just it genuinely is rubbish. If you're used to being intuitive and looking at body language, reading when someone's getting bored, when it's time to end a meeting, stuff like that, then it's really hard because you're having to work extra hard at just trying to work out what signals people are giving, if at all. And now we're working across time zones. I think this conversation really shows how much everything is connected and how when you disrupt one part of a system, the effects are felt elsewhere and that we can't really predict how all the ways in which this is going to play out for different communities you know what might some of the longer term repercussions be and are there ways that we can foresee some of this and try and mitigate against it yeah i mean i would say if you're a you know if you're a demographer or sociologist then you argue that that there are higher numbers of the bame community in particular parts of the UK or, or any region where there was a higher degree of social deprivation or a greater risk of infection, then then these are the impacts or, you know, the quality of, of housing, where people are living, how many people are living in the same property, whether they own or whether they rent. And I think it's it's worth therefore looking at the breakdown in those things. And also, I think it's worth distinguishing between when we say BAME, especially in academia, are we talking about people that have been born in the UK and, and spent most of their life here? Or are we talking about international economic migrants who've come over? And so that's where sometimes things might not be picked up because, you know, you could be highly qualified professional, but you've come over to the, to the UK or London and rent is ridiculously high. You can't afford half a million pounds to buy some small two-bedroom flat in East London or something. So that's where I think that we should we should drill down in some of those things. We haven't isolated those things. The facts often are speaking for themselves when it comes to things like BAME, but if those explanations are not supporting those, and they take time to explain those things, and they don't work easily on social media where you've got a limited number of characters and you've got a load of trolls. And, and what I found as well, I actually... Uh, put out um, a comment on LinkedIn because, you know, with the increase in, in all of these things, I have increased the number of articles that I've shared 
focusing on COVID-19, on Black Lives Matter, on, on BAME communities. And you do get a little bit of, of a pushback where people say, you know, all lives matter, or, you know, there, there are lots of assumptions, or, you know, you get trolled. And, and I did make the point that what I have noticed is that if you look at something like Black Lives Matter, when I talk about equality for the black community, I do get a higher number of negative comments. Mm. And some of them are quite threatening. Uh, same like if I'm talking about, you know, rights for the Muslim community or something like that. So I'd, I'd say that what's happened now is, you know, we've had a holiday from putting Muslims on the front pages and, and fear of terrorism and and kind of Sharia law, you know, trickling through the UK and all these sorts of things, because now we've got some stories where either you're seeing, you know, Muslims that are dying from COVID-19 or all of the success stories, all of the doctors and nurses that are putting their lives on the line. So it's kind of, you know, I've joked with some of my Muslim friends that it's like, oh, we, you know, we're having a break. And unfortunately, this kind of discrimination has now been trained upon the Chinese community. And I've seen a, a rise in kind of negative comments. And, and even you see, you know, walking on the street and, and there have been a number of stories. And so I, I have noticed a difference depending on, on whose issues you're championing. But in particular, there is a pushback when it comes to things to do with Black Lives Matter. And that's completely different that, you know, if I, if I give it a direct example, I've critiqued advertising campaigns that have been culturally insensitive in China by, you know, Western brands. And nobody comments and says, oh, shut up. You know, <laughs> like you're being too sensitive. Like literally it's like in China, they find that offensive and they are boycotting your products and Western brands need to learn a lesson. Western brands learn the lesson or they apologize. If you say, for example, this thing is discriminatory towards the black community, or this thing is kind of racist, or this thing shows a stereotyped image of somebody which is not welcomed, then people, I think, are, are less accommodating. And then we, we get into these debates that we say, oh, political correctness gone mad and stuff like that. And so people don't even want to engage in the discussions. So it's difficult. And so, you know, even in my research area, I would make the point that, you know, for example, how many people know, I, I read one report which said that a third of SMEs in London are Muslim owned. So it's not just that we're dealing with like, you know, a handful or, you know, a few million in the UK. Or if we look at the breakdown of, of minority communities in London, London is a different city than the rest of the UK. So it doesn't do us justice with regards to discussion. If we look at minorities, they're not spread across the UK. They're particularly populating certain cities. And that's where I think that we need more research that drills down into these areas. And then to accept that this is also different in different countries and different markets. This brings to mind so many different questions, but I'll start with why do you think that corporations do push back on this suggestion that they've been offensive or they've said something that is racist? Why do you see that response? There's actually quite a lot of reasons that come to mind, right? So let me let me try and remember them all. The most forgiving one is they had no idea. No one's ever brought it to their attention. Or perhaps the thought that they have been so offensive or racist without knowing for such a long time is, is just a shock. I mean, who wants to be told that they're wrong and horribly wrong and disproportionately wrong? There are millions of people around the world that feel that, that what you've said is rude or incorrect or insensitive, then that can be just maybe too big a shock for the soul. Therefore, people are defensive, that they fear litigation or there are implications. Uh, so like, you know, some companies now are changing the names of their brands or their logos because they feel it's appropriate now. But you could ask the question, why did it take this Black Lives Matter movement 
to raise this point when when people have been saying so for years and and you could argue that well they they weren't pushed hard enough that they didn't feel that there was a potential economic loss there could be other reasons which are you know i mean i've experienced it where there's an assumption that if you have a culturally diverse organization that then you will be culturally sensitive but it might be the case that depending on on how power is structured some uh, minority communities keep their mouth shut. I mean, I've been in organizations where people have wanted to keep their jobs and so have not wanted to push their head up and express that something was culturally insensitive because they felt that it might affect their employment prospects or they'd get shouted down or humiliated. So they just don't say, or, or they do say and they're drowned out. So I think there could be a number of reasons which are nuanced to a particular organization. And also, because I know that we all have blind spots. I mean, some of the things I've learned because I've been able to travel to different countries and I've got friends from from different communities. And I think we've all got blind spots. And then not in my backyard. So I often think that there are some companies which do things very well in terms of a localization approach that they go into a, uh, a country. So if you're a, you know, fast food companies are great at this, right? That they can go to India and say, oh, we know that the cow is a sacred animal. And therefore, we're not going to produce beef burgers. There's no Big Mac. There's a Maharaja Mac, and it's going to be chicken. And we're going to make it halal chicken, but we're not going to put a halal logo on it because the Muslim minority would know that it's halal, but the a Hindu majority might be offended by an overt labeling of, of this burger. And then we'll make it more spicy, and we'll have like potato burgers and stuff like that. So they know how to do India or no pork in Israel or halal in Morocco and certificates everywhere. So they, they know how to do it, but then you could argue, so why don't you do it in your backyard in America? Or why uh, aren't you more rep- representative? And it might be that they've never been challenged before or, that, or they feel there's no reason. But also, I guess, for some companies, if you make the effort, but then you make a mistake, it feels terrible. We saw lots of companies kind of and industries and brands make a response after the murder of George Floyd and the resurgence in Black Lives Matter. And we saw, you know, kind of Blackout Tuesday. And and what were your thoughts around Blackout Tuesday? I think there was a bit of peer pressure that companies felt that they had to do it. You could argue that's something which social media is pushing us to do, which is silence sometimes is not a good look. So an absence on social media at a a crucial moment, it appears that the media and and everyone is, is going online to see what are you saying linked to this particular moment. And so companies, I think, felt a peer pressure to have to do this Blackout Tuesday thing. But then they didn't have a kind of strategy as to, okay, where we go from now. And then that's why some companies were called out where they said, okay, you said this and that Black Lives Matter, but now we've gone on your website and we've looked at your boardroom representation and it's non-existent. So it has been quite messy. Some of that is just because of the rise of social media, that we're now being pressurized into a situation where we have to respond in real time. And that's going to pose challenges for companies. And I think there are only a few that can win. And they're probably the ones that have been thinking about it for a long time, or they have the personality where their audiences, you know, can forgive them or or can work with them. You know, some companies can have a sense of humor, but others, it's, it's really difficult. And probably, you know, if we look at I would say academic institutions, they're, they're going to be the next ones probably in, in the headlights because, because of some of the stats that you've mentioned that, that more people are going to hold them to account because, you know, if you put all of these things together, which are tuition fees appear to be really high and there's online education, 
and then you've got this momentum of Black Lives Matter, or you've got more reports coming out, then I guess that, that there will be some movement as to whether that's a sincere uh, about turn and change in policy, or whether that's a knee-jerk response, or out of guilt, or whatever it is, who knows. But I, I think it's going to be incredibly difficult. And and for me, one of the challenges is, you know, if people have been ignorant for, for such a period of time, there are lots of assumptions that have to be debunked. So, for example, some people might say, you know, like if I was to say that there are approximately 20,000 full professors in the UK and under 150 are black, then when I mention that statistic, if you're black, you go, oh my goodness. But there are some people that then offer reasons without any other, without any further evidence, but they say, oh, it's because, or you know what it is. And you think, okay, this, this becomes the kind of the, the unconscious bias, right? We just don't get the applications, that kind of thing. Yeah, you don't accept the reality because because it is frightening or or it is disgusting. And but then how do you move forward? Then people often say, Okay, so what you know, what are the solutions? The solutions are let's get some mentors for BAME people so that we can we can get them into senior management. So we'll have some kind of like fast track management for BAMES. And but what if I was to say that assumption is basically saying that BAMES aren't already ready? or they're not qualified. In the same way as, you know, if you look at another protected characteristic, if you had females in academia and you said, okay, right, there aren't enough um, female senior managers, let's get them mentors. Let's get them male mentors and let's get them ready for management. That would be tone deaf. So why is it that, that when it comes to the BAME community, you can get them a load of white mentors <laughs> and get them ready for senior management? Like maybe they're already ready. Or maybe you should get BAMES to mentor the senior management who are predominantly white and male to indicate what it is that they need to do. It's a rush to get to solutions, I think, and to make the problem not on your plate anymore. But it means that people don't ask, what is the problem that we are actually trying to solve before they take any actions? Yeah. And I think, you know, how can universities have these authentic and, and credible conversations and, and take actions around racial inequalities? I mean, I would say it's the same as with COVID-19. You know, there are lots of experts that have been generous in, in giving their time. So, I mean, you know, if I was to be slightly crass, if there are under 150 black full professors, we're not hard to find. Give us a call and ask us how we made it. What were the problems that we faced and we had to overcome? Like, I can remember, like, with one of my professorial interviews, there was a panel, I think there were like 10 to 12 people, and, and they were all white. That's the reality. I mean, it was after that I reflected upon it. I was like, well, you know, maybe it's it's not as big a thing for me as, as for someone else because, you know, I'm mixed race or something. But but actually, the fact that the university got so far and they they it wasn't even a consideration and they had external professors as part of the review panel and they chose people that were also white. So I think that, you know, it's that tacit knowledge that they could get from actually talking to experts and really trying to solve the problem rather than just think of it as a box tick or, or being worried about these things. You know, there are many of us that, that want these things to move forward. Also looking at, you know, other areas offering scholarships. The problem is not with students in that there are enough BAME students going to university. There are high levels so what about offering some, getting them to stick around and consider doing a PhD and, and becoming academics? There are easy solutions. Or, you know, the one that always gets me is um, there are a lot of discussions in the minute about decolonizing the curriculum. And I'm not saying that that's a wrong thing to entertain, but a lot of the discussions seem to be focused on 
okay, uh, let's get some reading lists and let's share them. Okay, but for me, a quick way to decolonize a curriculum is to have a more representative faculty or to look at like, you know, of the representative faculty, which people are in positions of influence? Because actually, yeah, the, the, there are a decent number of BAME academics. Some people might be listening thinking, oh, you talk about these small numbers. There are decent numbers of BAME academics who are teaching fellows, who are junior lecturers, but they don't necessarily have any decision making. So it, it, it's also about how do you reward and promote these people and allow them to have a positive influence on the curriculum? Because, for example, as a black academic, do I only research black things? No. <laughs> right? So how do you classify me on a reading list? Is it that, you know, because you wouldn't know from my, perhaps you wouldn't guess from my name, Jonathan Wilson. So does that mean that somebody's going to do an audit and say, oh, he doesn't have an African sounding name, so he's not black? And he doesn't know about black things. So we'll get him off the reading list and we'll put somebody else on. Or is it that you know who I am and then you, you put me forward? Uh, but that's not necessarily actually taking into account what my academic arguments are. Because it is possible that it, decolonizing the curriculum, if you think that there are some academics from all over the world that have been educated in the West and have no problem with some of the arguments that have been put forward for centuries. Like I've got friends from outside of Europe would tell me like, you know, how there have been some positives from, I don't know, colonialism or slavery or stuff like that. And they have a different perspective because they've lived in a different country and they have a different experience or they have different notions as to what, you know, race means. So I, I actually think that a lot of these things, it might seem daunting and complicated, but I think that we should be wise about trying to encourage people to enjoy the conversation and the journey but I, I do readily concede that that means that we have to have some kind of uh, rules of engagement and develop a sense of trust. And it's and, and it's easy when, when you're on social media to become kind of siloed or to be in echo chambers. And then suddenly everyone is classified according to effectively biological traits, which is, you know, you go online, you see that somebody is a white male, and then there are assumptions that, oh, then he must not know about black people or something like that. But then I might argue, for example, you know, my dad is an old white male. He knows quite a lot about black people because he, he, you know, he married my mum and had me. And I've, I've kind of kept him in check, right? And so it's whether we can get to the next stage in, in what you're saying about diversity and, and past Blackout Tuesday. In Okay, these issues are important, but can we have honest discussions where people are trusting and we can get away from kind of I think there are people that, that actually do want to derail these discussions. There are trolls and there are people that talk about political correctness gone mad and how, you know, the empire is going to, you know, if we pull one statue down, then they want to put all the statues down and the reparations will, will, you know, bankrupt the country. And and I do worry because I think some of them are, are mischievous or, or destructive comments. And one of the ones that... Um, jumped out at me was like, even if we look at comedy and, and probably the impact that this is all going to have on, on comedians and blackface, some things legitimately, I think, should be removed because they're culturally insensitive. But then there are other things where it's almost like it's the wrong person that's made that judgment call. I don't know if you've, like, you know, if those people have spoken to those minority communities and actually thought, is this actually offensive? And this is the thing that there are going to be uncomfortable conversations where then people are going to debate and negotiate who owns what identities or words. And that's going to 
also translate to African-American comedians. It's going to translate to music. It's going to translate to... I've seen instances where a white influencer that was listening to hip-hop and was lip-syncing on TikTok, and because they used um, the N-word, then people felt that she was being culturally insensitive. And then I can see how there are going to be lots of casualties. And I'm just worried that these anecdotes or examples don't take us any further forward, which is basically that we want to have a more cohesive, enjoyable, fun, enlightened society. And that brings to mind, there's been some criticism around the term BAME yeah, and that it has its drawbacks. You know, could you talk more about that term and, and about language we use? I get what they're saying. And, and the other one, we were talking about it, right? It was BIPOC, wasn't it? Black, Indigenous, person of colour. And I think the thing is that that these terms are very much bound within the zeitgeist, that they're in a particular time, context, and geographic location. Uh, because because you're trying to explain something in an easy-to-understand format uh, that explains why things aren't working or, or why people are being treated differently. Uh, and I realize that on social media, it's a level playing field where anyone can express why they don't like certain terms. Now, I have no problem with people disagreeing, and, and I can see why. But then I guess the important question is, okay, so what do we now use to classify this group of people that are experiencing something which is homogenous enough for it to be a phenomenon that, that needs addressing? So like if I, if I think, you know, for example, close to home, I've mentioned in this podcast that I'm a black academic, but also I've said that I'm mixed race. And so some people might say, but okay, you've said you've got a white dad and a black mum, but one time you call yourself black. Are you denying your white heritage? No, I'm not. I wear a kilt. Proud to be from Manchester. But the thing that I would say is it's about context, intention. There are, there are lots of factors that go into whether I'm comfortable, you know, with, with being, you know, referred to or classified as, for example, a black academic. If it's to do with monitoring because there are disproportionately high numbers of factors that affect black academics, then I think it's very important for me to go on record. If it's for a biological reason that I for whatever reason, for genetic reasons, I am at a higher risk, then of course being classified as black makes sense. But if it's suddenly that, like, because I'm black, then automatically that means that I'm faster at running and I like chicken more and I'm a better dancer and I'm a better boxer or, you know, I'm naturally funnier, then, then I'm a bit uncomfortable with those things. And I don't even really like positive stereotypes. I know that some people might say, well, if it works for you, then, then, then use it, right? So I think that this becomes the challenge that at some stage, I, I would say that I'm quite pragmatic and thinking, okay, then, yeah, these things don't fully define me, but I need to be in a category so that somebody can work out how to solve these problems. It's just about which category works best. And, and for those of us that have been old enough to see that things have moved from black to BME to BAME, now BIPOC, whatever, then, then perhaps we're a little bit more easygoing about that because we know that there's going to be another term that comes out. But I get it for some people, then, then they feel that maybe Asian is too big a category or black is a color, but is not a geographic location. Yeah, I get it, but we've just got to have that dialogue. I think that brings up some interesting things to mind about the relationship, say, between systematic racism that's built in at the top and that needs these kind of categorizations and this personal level of racism and everyday incidents that play out. And I'm wondering actually how COVID-19 has brought some of those things to the surface. Yeah, I mean, also depends on who you talk to. Some people would argue that they've experienced less racism because they've been at home, <laughs> right? And they've not been out on the streets. But then there are other people that there are 
a worrying number of stories where if you look at, I would say, an abuse of policy or stop and search, where you know there are lots of minorities that have been pulled over during COVID nineteen, and, and and also it depends on what news channel you watch and at what time of the day. If you watch news late at night like me, then you see more in depth analysis. But you know there've been quite a few uh, key workers working for the NHS that have been pulled over coming away from a shift, and that you know you're a black woman pulled over by the police, potentially being faced facing handcuffs, being asked, what are you doing breaking lockdown? Mm. I'm a nurse. And just that kind of, just having to prove yourself. And, and when you add up the stats, then that, that, that's terrible. So I think that there are, yeah, there are lots of factors that, that come into play as to whether we understand each other better. Who knows? But I think, yeah, it, it does link to which area you're in, how old you are, uh, what job you do. And those can have a profound effect. And we touched on earlier around the um, the report that the government has commissioned in uh, response to COVID-19. And we've had many reports before that foresaw and predicted some of the issues we're currently dealing with and made, you know, measurable recommendations that weren't implemented. And it seems Britain has had many chances to, to talk about race. So what needs to be different about this time? What needs to change? That's a really good question. And I'm glad that I'm not a politician. Um, <laughs> I would say... I mean, a lot, a lot of people's decisions, it comes down to kind of basic psychology. A lot of it is about self-interest. Mm. You know, it's not going to serve somebody's self-interest, as in like it's not going to get you more votes or it's not going to make you more money, then it's easy just to kick it into the long grass. And I think that's the problem that we face. So now, like with COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter, it is forcing people to address some of these issues. But you're right, they have been around for a long time. If, if I talk about close home with academia, the stats haven't changed for years. And, and there are a number of business schools that, I mean, I was, and, and you can look online now, there are, there are a number of business schools in the UK, elite business schools, which employ no black academics out of like about 180 faculty members. But they will market a global education and they will have brochures and prospectuses with you know, diverse students. But as I mentioned, you know, in an article in The Guardian, I said that sometimes academia looks like a pint of Guinness, you know, it's white at the top. And I think sometimes people need to be nudged in a direction where it's it's not about choice, but actually, we, we need to affect change. And I think it's easy for people to overlook those, depending on who's in power, uh, depending on who they can influence, if there's an economic benefit, but sadly, yeah, the, these other things also, there is a real risk that if we are facing an economic downturn, that there's also a delay in addressing these, because how can you address these issues if the NHS is overburdened or if businesses are closing down and there's a recruitment freeze? So I could argue that, you know, you could have an, an organization where you say, okay, no, we are going to address BAME representation, but then they've got recruitment freeze. So what does that mean? You're going to promote people within the organization? Like, you know, it's it, it is going to be really challenging because there seem to be so many factors happening at the same time. I mean, you might argue there's never a right time to do this, but literally there are there are lots of things interconnected that that relate to this, whether that's, you know, the Premier League and the amount of BAME professional footballers, but the lack of representation in management or within the organizations, and looking to the United States of America and how they've been able to solve some of these issues or move in the right direction uh, with representation as coaches and, and management. So it is incredibly complicated, and that's probably where you know we run out of time because uh, in order to have a meaningful discussion, there are just too many factors or people just lose interest and then think, okay, what what is our our tenable solution to this. 
Well, thank you for that fascinating and wide-ranging conversation, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. No, it was a real pleasure. If you'd like to find out more about Jonathan's journal, The Journal of Islamic Marketing, we've put together a few articles. You'll find the link below in the show notes. Emerald Podcast Series is a fortnightly research podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to suggest any topics you want us to cover, please get in touch. You can find me on Twitter at hbed04 or follow us at Emerald Global or at Emerald Sock. Thank you for listening.